millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Millsoff, senior editor at Billboard and musical theater expert here. So it's rare for any kind of artist to have a career that not only persists for decades, but continues to evolve over many, many years. In the pop and rock realm, the artists who become icons, like, for instance, Tom Petty, who just passed away this past week, are the ones who keep trying to find new approaches to their craft over the years. And that's certainly true for the stars of the musical theater world, too, like my guest on the podcast today, Betty Buckley. The breadth and depth of her career is really astounding from any perspective, musical theater or not. She made her Broadway debut back in 1969, playing Martha Jefferson in the musical 1776, which, in case you're not familiar with it, is definitely one of the direct ancestors of Hamilton. Uh, And that was just the start of her life in the theater, which included two especially iconic roles. She was the original Grizabella in Cats, That is the cat who sings Memory, for those of you who haven't seen Cats. Uh, She won a Tony Award for that. uh, And she played Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard as well. It's tempting to just immediately start singing Memory when you hear Betty Buckley's name, but she has done a lot more than that in her uh, artistic life. On screen, she's had major roles on the TV show Eight is Enough in the movie Carrie, and she has released amazingly, 17 solo albums, which I can't quite wrap my mind around, including Ghost Light recently, which she made with her childhood friend from Fort Worth, Texas, the great producer T-Bone Burnett. And earlier this year, she put out the album Story Songs. And that album, to me, really epitomizes how creative she is. She's 70 years old, and she is singing along with songs you might expect from Stephen Sondheim, Rodgers and Hammerstein, contemporary musical theater writers like Jason Robert Brown and Joe Iconis. She's singing pop and rock tracks by, say, Radiohead and Peter Gabriel. Uh, She'll be singing some of those songs along with some newer selections, including songs by Steely Dan and Lisa Loeb on Story Songs 2, which is a show she'll be doing at Joe's Pub in New York, October 12th through 15th. I'm actually sorry I wasn't able to record a conversation Betty and I had after the podcast in which I mentioned to her that I was not the world's biggest Steely Dan fan and she gave me an extremely impassioned defense of Steely Dan, which I will not soon forget. Uh, But in advance of these shows, we talked about her love of rock music, her lengthy recording and stage career, and a lot more. You 
you've been recording for such a long time and just hearing you talk about this album, you clearly like really intimately know the process of recording, what makes something really good. And I think that it's really unique for someone who, you know, came to prominence in musical theater to have had such a lengthy recording career, Thank period. You. Thanks. Um, I mean, how... How has recording changed for you from when you, you know, put out your first album in the 80s to now? Like, has what you want out of making an album changed at all? Or The first um, soundtrack or cast album I did was 1776, and I uh, sang the violin song that Martha Jefferson sings in the show. So it was, you know, produced by uh, the brilliant Broadway producer uh, Stuart Ostro, and he worked with a classic a producer named Thomas Shepard, who... Of all the great Broadway cast albums you've probably ever known and loved, like from the generation before me and then my generation, so he mm-hmm. was the guy at Columbia that produced these records. Mm-hmm. So that was my first awareness of <clears throat> how it works, you know, and I didn't know how to sing on microphone and stuff like that. There's so much to learn. And then uh, the next one I did was, was Promises, Promises in London. We did a cast album for that, and that was working with Burt Backrack and Hal David. And so then that's another swoon, echelon. Swoon. You know, the swoon is right. <laughs> you know, I had such a crush on those guys because, you know, they scored my life in college. And yeah. I was like, oh, my God. I'm I have a crush on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the best. And so I was this 22-year-old young leading lady there and, you know, got to work with them. And so then um, there was some – during the success of uh, Promises, Promises, a couple of record producers approached me. And I was trying, I wanted to write songs so badly. I, you know, I, I wanted to sing like Joni Mitchell, you know, I wanted to be, my whole, one of the conflicts of me as a musician, singer or whatever in the world is like m- when I was growing up in Texas, I grew up in the 60s, you know, I went to college in the late 60s and I was so influenced by the music of that time. And, you know, Janis Joplin was from Beaumont, Texas. And I loved Janis Joplin. Mm-hmm. And um, I loved Led Zeppelin. And I loved the Jefferson Airplane and Grace Slick and, you know, all these great rock artists. And, um, you know, Rolling Stones and the Beatles, you know, everybody. So I, my dream was to be, like, to sing. I wanted to be a rocker. You know, I wanted to be a rock singer. But my path was through the musical theater. And, you know, I started performing professionally in musicals uh, in Texas when I was 15 and stuff. And so... Then I worked with a little jazz trio at a jazz club in Fort Worth, you know, um, while I was in college. Because my, my father was like, there's no way you're going to Berkeley, you know, not, you're never leaving Fort Worth, you know. And it's like, you will go to Texas Christian University and you will like it, you know. And so that was, he was a really strict guy. Like, he kept my, my twin brothers had wild curly hair and he made them have buzz cuts, you know, for, during the 60s. I, I'm getting an idea. You get it, right? So it was pretty impressive. And um, so I didn't get to go on that journey, but T-Bone once said to me, he said, you know, it's funny, Betty, because with all the stuff you've done in the theater and everything, he says, the truth that people don't know about you is you just always wanted to be part of the band, you know? It's like like we yeah. just went to see School of Rock. And it's so great, we right? went backstage afterwards to see my old dressing room in Cats because it's at the Winter Garden. Uh, and stuff. Yeah. It was so fun. And those kids, there was like there were about four of them that are massive theater nerds mm-hmm. and knew who I was. They were little <laughs> kids, you know, and they were came up and giving me hugs and they gave me a little button that says, "You're you're one of the band." You're you know, and I was like, yes. "Oh, I'm, I'm in the band finally," you know. So <laughs> anyway, I um I and I loved jazz musicians. I loved them growing up. You know, I found jazz instrumentalists and 
Brazilian music like Brazil 66 and Antonio Carlos Joe Beams. And, and then I found Keith Jarrett, the solo pianist, you know, the improvisational yeah. pianist who changed my life in my mid-20s. And, you know, all these great jazz artists, Dave Brubeck, Cannonball Adderley. And then I studied all the great lady jazz singers, you know, like Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and Nancy Wilson and, you know, I really learned to sing better by practicing with Judy Garland's um, live at Carnegie Hall album. I could duplicate everything in that. You <laughs> Amazing. Know? Yeah, I just it was a good mimic in the beginning. And <clears throat> but I, I wanted to work with jazz musicians because I love their palette, their colors that they can bring to music. Sure. And I see music in colors and like paintings. I see each song as a kind of pa- a moving painting or a little movie that I run in front of my mind's eye. And I like to work with collaborators that can <clears throat> enhance the experience of that little movie. And I, you know, my collaborators, I always talk to them about scoring a song like they would a, a film. Mm-hmm. And I tell them what I what I'm seeing and what the character is and what the situation is. And that's the path we take in the arrangement. So I started putting these collections of music together with my collaborator Kenny Werner, <clears throat> and we started creating these very uh, different, very surrealistic, impressionistic arrangements of standards. And the this record company, uh, independent record company, picked us up. And we did five albums for them. Um, and, you know, a, th- a couple of them were live albums, but three, I think three of them were studio albums. Mm-hmm. So I kind of learned about the process then of, you know, live studio recording versus live uh, concert recordings. I love concert recordings live because you really get the spontaneousness, but you can't, it's not always perfectly sung, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes you can go and fix something and sometimes you can't, you know. But the 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 good thing about a studio recording is that you can you can perfect the performance to the best, but it, does, it sometimes lacks the raw energy of a concert performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's hard when you're a, a singer, I think it's it's difficult to learn how to use your voice really intimately in a microphone and, mm-hmm. and still are making a very precise communication to whoever your listener is going to be to establish that kind of intimate connection. And the, the great lady singers know how to do that. But I had to, you know, I've had to really study that and learn what that is. Because my voice is really meant to be in an acoustic hall where there's a resonant pocket mm-hmm. of sound. And that's what really made me want to be a singer was sound and echo. Like I would, when I was a kid, I would go into churches or I'd find a culvert under a highway and I would love the reverb. Yeah, of echo. a lot of reverb under a highway. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you, but if it's a culvert, you know, you go in and I would sing there. When I first got to New York, I went into St. John's of the Divine when they were about to close. Oh. <laughs> and sang there, you know, just to hear the resonant sound. I would think everyone sounds great at St. John the Divine. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the thing. And then um, then St. Bart's, where I did my first concert after I was in Cats uh, when I was 35. Uh, they asked me to do a couple of concerts that were for the homeless, uh, you know, it was benefit concert that they were uh, doing, and we recorded that live. And so that was my first record, which was released by Rizzoli Records. I'm really only as good as my collaborators. I can only really achieve anything. But now I've got a team of people that I just trust, you know, that I've, that's been evolving and changing through the years. And for, like, the the original ensemble I had, I learned so much from working with Kenny Warner and that band, mm-hmm. well, from each one of the members of that band. 
and um, continuing to learn from my current collaborators. And it's fun. It's just so fun. I was going to say, you. I mean, you really are with the band now. You've yeah, got, I'm one of the band. Your, you've got your group, and you travel around together. It really is more like the life of you know, an indie rock musician that you're leading. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's, uh, it's not, maybe is I'm not on the road that much, you know, it's like mm-hmm. if I do, I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of concerts in October into early November. I'd like to do it a lot more than I do because I love it so much. I, there's no greater joy for me other than horses and dogs and stuff. You know, I rescue animals in Texas and live mm-hmm. on a ranch. But my among my greatest loves is music and standing on a stage with brilliant musicians and hearing them, what they do, because they're so spontaneous, it's never the same. In every performance, you're like, oh my God, listen to that, you know? So my concert experience is like, you know, listening and being a part of an experience that's so vital in life. So I haven't, I haven't done a concert for a couple of months. You know, I'm in town right now doing, uh, being Michael Feinstein's guest star at, um, Fine. Nice thing to be. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, 54 Below. I'm just singing two songs in the show, and they're both from story songs. One is called Chanson by Stephen Schwartz, and the other is, mm-hmm. but it's Christian's arrangement. And one is called um, Another Life by Jason Robert Brown. Both are, They're both on my story songs record. Well, when you were talking about your voice just now and the idea of you know how you sound in a concert hall versus in a live recording, when I was listening to this album, it did occur to me, which I hadn't thought of as much before, that you your voice does have a lot in common with a singer like Janis Joplin or oh, more of a sort of rock singer. Like that, I think that part of what has always made your voice seem so special is that it has edges and it Thank has you. Um, you know a lot of different nuances. And I think that particularly in the Broadway world our idea of a beautiful voice can often be one that's very pure, but like very smoothed over. Mm-hmm. And um, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah I'm, totally. I am assuming that part of what made you stand out when you came along was that you're, mm-hmm. I mean, you're instantly recognizable as Betty Buckley. Thank you. <laughs> My voice has evolved and changed through the years. And that's a really interesting thing for a professional singer to go through. Fortunately, I studied with this man uh, when I first was in New York, I found this brilliant teacher because I found these singers that I love the most. Uh, like there's a brilliant girl and beautiful, beautiful girl named Victoria Mallory, who played Anne in the original company of Little Night Music, mm-hmm. and she had dark black hair, brunette hair, and she sang like an angel. And when I saw the show, I was just like, "Who is that? That girl is out of this world," you know. So I mean, it was so crazy because she could just like she would lean over the bed with her hair hanging down. She could be she could sing like that from, you know, she wouldn't. It was just <laughs> like the most effortless, beautiful sound I'd ever heard, truly. And I went backstage to meet her, you know, and I just said, "Who are you?" You know, and said, "Why do you? How do you sing like that?" You know, and she was so kind and sweet. And she goes, "It's because of my teacher, Paul Gavert," and she said she invited me the following week to go to a lesson with her. And he used to be on the Upper West Side, and then he moved to right near Carnegie Hall on 7th Avenue at 54th. And so I watched her lesson and immediately started studying with him. And I studied with him for 19 and a half years. And it took me studying for 13 years with him to really even begin to comprehend what he was talking about. Like, I would learn the lessons, but I didn't know how it fit and how it applied to me. Because I was just, I never imagined... um, I you know, was a natural singer, and I just kind of did what I did and thought I knew what I was doing. But this, the process with him so humbled me. And we got to the point where I got memory in Cats, right? And I wasn't 
stopping the show with the song during the previews. And that was the job assignment, stop the show. Mm-hmm. Because they knew it could be done because of the great Elaine Page in London, right? Yes. <laughs> so it took them six months to decide whether they were going to cast me or not. Because they, everybody that was anybody wanted to do play Grizabella. So I had auditioned at the beginning of the audition process. And they told my agent, no, she, uh, we're looking for somebody who's smaller, because I was tall, you know, mm-hmm. um, and who uh, radiates um, health and, no, who radiates death and dying. And uh, <laughs> Betty radiates health and well-being. You know, and she's like this tall girl from Texas. So she's not right for the part. And so my agent's name was Joanna Ross, and she was a, a British, wonderful British lady. And she, I said, I knew, I just had this feeling about it. I, I, kinda, I just knew it was my job, you know. And sometimes that you know that, and sometimes you don't, you know. <laughs> but, um, and you're not always accurate, obviously, but I, I just had this powerful feeling about this show and this mm-hmm. song and the part. And I said to her, they'll be back. And six went, months went by, and they auditioned everybody in New York. They auditioned everybody in L.A. They auditioned everybody they could in America. Mm-hmm. And week after week, there'd be a new story in the New York Post about. So-and-so, you know, Cher wanted to be Grizabella at one point, and you know, all these names of people that, yeah, I know, can you be interesting? Trying to imagine that. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's so great. I've, I, you know, I've met her and hung out with her, and I was, actually, I could see Cher doing her version of Grizabella. Yeah. Anyway, so six months later, I get this call from Joanna, and she says, um, are you sitting down? And I said, no. She said, sit down. So I sat down. She said, uh, you're going in tomorrow for Cats again. And I said, I told you. You know, so. <laughs> I'll radiate a, death and die. I, I know more. how to do that. You know, so I went in. Do you want to hear this story? I mean, it's kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. It is funny. Um, I sang Memory, and Trevor Nunn comes up and he directs me. And he, basically, the essential direction was like, no, more suicidal, more suicidal. So, <laughs> so I just, so I'm like, okay, what do I do? And kind of, you know, cut, cut my wrist, you know, wrist, shoot myself in the head. What do you want me to do? Cut my throat? <laughs> I don't know. Cat. I don't know what you mean. It's, you know, and so I tried to sing it again and just really turn myself inside out, right? And he comes up another time. This is this after the second version. He goes, no, more suicidal. And I was like, Okay, so I sang it the third time, and I thought, well, there, I don't know what else to do than that. That's just like I, I was inside out and upside down and sang it as well as I could. Mm-hmm. So he comes up to the edge of the Winter Garden stage where we were auditioning, where we later did the show, and he said he was looked, he just looked confused. And like he didn't, you know, he just wasn't clear if I was still the thing. He heard memory and, one too many times, perhaps. <laughs> By one is too many what, people. Is that what happens when you've heard memory 18 million times? <laughs> like, he was confused. And he wrote the lyric, you see. Yeah. And, it, you know, because they had another song in the show in London. And um, it wasn't working. So Trevor went home and wrote this lyric, brought it back, and Andrew set it to music. Does this interest you? I don't know. Yeah, is yeah, it, yeah. Are you sure? Yes. I'm if waiting for the if it's off the, the great oh, Okay, I know. I'm, I'm like, I digress too much. So I said, can I speak to you, Mr. Nunn? And he said, sure. And he comes up to the edge of the stage. And I said, you know, surely at this point you've auditioned everybody you could possibly audition. And you know, and I know, who my colleagues are out there, my generation of singers. And uh, we both know, you know, any number of people that could do this and do this really great, you know. And I said, but nobody can do it better, and it's my turn. 
And he looked at me like, I know, I was like, what? How did I say that? You know, to this like brilliant director, you know, from the Royal Shakespeare Company head. Yeah, I was like, I felt like an idiot. And then I started babbling. And I said, look, I understand you think I'm too tall and that I radiate health and well-being. If you want me to radiate death and dying, I can do that. I'm a good actress. All you have to do is tell me exactly what you want me to do, and I can do it. And, uh, and I added that line about, and it's my turn, mm-hmm. because I knew who my colleagues were of the, of the girl singers, actresses in the business. And I knew all of them and had their moment to show the audience what they could do in the musical theater. And I had done a lot of musical theater, but I hadn't had this kind of part that would really reveal my potential mm-hmm. and um, that would let it be a vehicle for my abilities at that point where I'd been studying, studying acting, studying, studying singing for a number of years, mm-hmm. trying to make myself better with great, great master teachers. So he just still seemed like he was thinking about it. And then I felt really embarrassed and left, you know. So as I walked off stage, the rehearsal pianist gives me a thumbs up. Mm-hmm. You know, for the audition pianist. And then the, the stage manager gives me a thumbs up as I walked in the wings of the Winter Garden. And I said, oh, no, I think I really, you know, overspoke that one. And she's like, no, no, sometimes you really have to stand up and represent yourself. And so then I, I was, okay, maybe that was okay. So I left and I called Joanna, you know, who's also British. And she goes, oh, no, Betty, what are you going to do? When are you going to learn to keep your mouth shut? You're a crazy Texas girl. You're a brash Texas girl talking to one of the greatest British directors in the business. He doesn't want to hear what you have to say. (laughs) You know, you've got to learn to keep your mouth shut. You blew it. And I was like, oh, no, you know. So I was really down. And I took myself to my favorite restaurant on the east side. There used to be this great restaurant called Woods. Okay. So I went there on Madison Avenue. I loved it. So I went in there, and I was going to have take myself to lunch, right? <laughs> and so they knew me. I was there a lot. And so the phone rings at the restaurant, and they call me to the phone. It's Joanna. She said, are you sitting down? And I said, no. She said, sit down. <laughs> so I sat out at the bar, and she said, you got cats? So now we go into this intense rehearsal process and a three-month preview process before we open. Uh-huh. But I wasn't stopping the show. This is a long-winded story to tell you that. <laughs> I, you know, on my lunch break one day, we were performing at night. I'm not stopping the show. I'm not understanding why I'm not so, – because they're, they've, I'm doing everything they told me to do, you know. Mm-hmm. So I go – I call my teacher. I said – and I'm now my singing is getting worse. And they're calling special rehearsals. Like I did an hour of singing memory over and over again with Andrew Lloyd Webber. So he, Andrew Lloyd Webber says, um, you know, Placido Domingo was at the show last night. And he said, just tell the girl to just sing the song. Of course, he did it in his British accent. Yes. And I was like, I am singing the song. I don't know what you mean by that. I just mm-hmm. don't know what you mean. And then, you know, Trevor Nunn called a two-hour rehearsal, sang, um, and walked me through the entire story of The Winter's Tale. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm taking in everything he's saying, I swear to God. You know, I'm like just listening to everything, clinging to every word, trying to understand how it applies to Grisabella and her journey and the choreography and, you know, yes. not... I don't understand, you know. So I'm going on stage and I'm thinking about the winner's tale and I'm thinking about it, I'm singing it like Placido Domingo said to do. And I'm like, it's, it's like, a lot of thinking for I'm, one time. I'm, well, that's it. That was the issue, obviously. And so yeah. I finally uh, call my teacher and I, I, my voice starts, I'm losing the spin in my voice. It's like I don't know what to do anymore. I'm just like frantic. And so I, and there were, there, they, every time they were around me, they were tense, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, Go to see my. He said, "Come over in your lunch break." And he throws a pillow on the floor, and he says, "Hit this pillow." And I'm like, 
Paul, we're talking about a crisis. I'm about to be fired. It's not, a kinetic exercise is not going to work right now, you know. And he's like, "No, hit the pillow." <laughs> so I get down on my hands and knees. I'm hitting the pillow, hitting the pillow, hitting the pillow. And all of a sudden, I start sobbing and crying. And I hear this little kid's voice inside me going. I'm here, too. I'm here, too. And I realized the only person I hadn't consulted about how to play Grisabella was the kid in me who's the one that took herself to Carnegie Hall on an afternoon when they were the cleanup crew was there and sang a cappella in the space just to hear the resonance. And mm-hmm. Philharmonic, they did the same thing. I told you about St. John's of the Divine and, yeah. you know, entertain the cleaning crew and it's that kid that likes to sing, you know. So I so I started asking this inner self. It sounds like so new age, and I don't mean it like that. But <laughs> And so I start paying attention to signs in the universe. You know, I found a book about homeless people. I began to understand he had, Trevor Nunn had conceived the role of Grisabella as like a, a metaphor uh, to the problem of homelessness and cultural rejection of mm-hmm. what isn't perfect. And that's what she represents. And he told me she was like the pariah of the tribe that, you know, represents death and dying. That culturally we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to deal with aging. We don't want to deal with anything like that. We don't mm-hmm. want to tell the truth about it. And we don't want to embrace it, certainly in ourselves, because we fear it all so much. And I, so I was like, oh, you know. Then I started following homeless people around New York. In the meantime, at the show every night, I'm still not stopping the show. <laughs> And I, but I'm in process, and I'm learning a lot of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And these incredible homeless women crossed my path that were enormous inspiration. Like one morning, I walk out of my porch. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the Upper West Side, and there's this woman whose hair is exactly the same color as Grisabella's. Mm -hmm. And her makeup, she's wearing this white pasty makeup with smeared lipstick. And she's floating down the street like she's the most beautiful thing in the world. And our eyes meet. And there's like this sense of, I have so much to share with you if you had the time, but you don't, neither do I. So she goes off on her way. Hmm. Two nights later, I walk out of the Winter Garden Theater, and there's a woman just like her that floated across my path, and our eyes met. And I started understanding Grisabella's vulnerability, yes, but her dignity and her incredible heart. Mm-hmm. And so in the meantime, at the theater, they're all acting all like they're kind of tiptoeing around me and, and like, you know, I'm like, how can we help you because you're still not getting it, right? <laughs> and for some strange reason, I just said, I'm in transition, I didn't even know why I said that, you know, and and they went, oh, she's in transition. So they left me alone for two weeks and four performances before our opening night, it all coalesced, all the images that had been coming to me, the inspiration, the teacher's instruction, and it kind of just thunked into place like a computer. And I was like, oh, and I knew what to do. And I went out and did it. And it was the first time, like this was like four performances before the opening night. I'll never forget it as long as I live. There was that stunned silence, and then the place went insane. And it was like that always after that. Mm-hmm. Isn't that weird? It is weird, but it's. I feel like uh, there are a lot of stories like that with, with, with singing where 
the simplest solution is often the best solution. Yeah. And especially with, you know, on the subject of story songs, memory is a, is a story song. Oh, for and, sure. You know, if I feel like if you just let that story tell itself in sort of the most honest way possible, that's when it's going to bring the house down. Yeah, but that's, there's a lot more to it than that. Yes, obviously. There's <laughs> a lot, lot more technique to it than that, but I'm oversimplifying. Um, you, ultimately, that's the result you want people yeah. to experience. But to get to that, where every single image that you articulate is something you absolutely have know what you're seeing and know what you're experiencing and what it means and how it connects to the next image, the line of that journey, really important. And um, the anyway, from that experience, I knew how to uh, find the movie in my head mm-hmm. and share it with the audience. And I found a connection with the audience that I'd never experienced before, except in moments of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Then I started doing concert work and uh, continued that methodology in each song that I found mm-hmm. um, in terms of a, a structure and a way of working. And then added in my arrangers who can interpret my feelings in choice of color palette in dissonant chords and different kinds of jazz chords you know, mm-hmm. that are most associated with jazz in terms of the storytelling. And then um, over time and practice and practice and practice and different opportunities to do this thing, hopefully you get better at it. And then you get to work with a producer like T-Bone Burnett, who teaches you even more about intimate singing on the microphone in I the was studio. I was going to say, what, what did working with T-Bone teach you about your own voice that, that maybe you hadn't tapped into before? Well, he, he made me sing very small. And um, we, you know, we recorded it all in three days in a lockout in the studio, in this beautiful studio called The Village, in a, the Studio A, which was built for Fleetwood Mac. And the vocal nice. booth was built for Stevie Nicks. And so the owner of the studio, Jeff, brought in these beautiful pink long sim roses for me. And so it was like <laughs> amazing. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. And the night of our, um, when we finished the album, I drove home uh, to, where, to my hotel in Hollywood and and there was a full moon, and I was just like, it, it was bliss, beyond bliss, that experience, and working with these incredible musicians that T-Bone had put together. And that was the first time I'd recorded with a group of musicians that I didn't know that was picked for me by a producer. And he, as a producer, d- directs like a film director, and which was very similar to the way I tell stories. I can see that. And so he would set it up cinema, uh, cinema, cinemagraphically, um, like he was a cinematographer, like what he, images mm-hmm. he's seeing. He would show us a video of um, a song we were doing that he he picked the repertoire um, and the band. We'd all collaborate, and then we'd play it, play it, play it until he said, "Okay, you're ready to record it." And then that process went on. That was really exciting to learn. But I had to, and then I did the vocal, the vocal tracks. Some of them were the live ones that were done um, in that initial recording, and some were, were added later. And then I went in and worked with Jason Wormer, his incredible engineer, who's been my collaborator since, and learned even more about, you know, how to refine for the intimacy of singing in a studio. I would think T-Bone has very good taste in engineers. No kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Um, so then for this album, uh, I mean, the, the mix of the music on it is so interesting to me, and particularly uh, the, you know, you have classic musical theater songs like Carefully Taught, but then you have Radiohead. Mm-hmm. And um, I love hearing you sing Radiohead. Mm-hmm. And 
um, one of my favorite Peter Gabriel songs, Don't Give Up, um, and Kate Bush, of course, can't forget Mm her. Um, So how did you zero in on those specific songs to include? Like, I mean, where did Radiohead come from for you? Well, (laughs) most of the songs in the record were suggested by other people. Only a couple of them really came from me, which was very interesting. That whole year before we put story songs together mm-hmm. were people making suggestions of songs to me. And so, um, like, Martha Plimpton called me to sing at a benefit. She was doing at 54 Below, um, Fine Science 54 Below, for her organization A is 4, which is a women's rights organization. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, I want you to sing uh, uh, Radiohead's High and Dry. I said, hi, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and she said, no, I, I think it'd be great. And I was just like, okay, well, I love Radiohead and I have all their records, but I would have never thought to look for material there for mm-hmm. me, you know? So I started listening to the song and I couldn't, and so I tried to suggest a whole bunch of other songs, you know, um, from rock songs, because clearly they wanted me to sing a rock thing. And uh, I suggested something by, um, I've been cheated, I've been mistreated, when will I be loved? You know, Linda Ross yeah. Um the Everly Brothers. You know, I was suggesting some other stuff that I knew I could really nail, you know, that I could really. A little really, bit of a Texas bent. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, you know, but rock and roll. Yeah. You know, Janis Joplin, as you mentioned. And so they were like, no, no. And, and her, her pianist, music director, was really insistent, you know. So I was like, you know, and I felt a little weird about it because, you know, I always, I, I always think, you know, I should get to sing what I want to sing. And, and, and the older I get, I think I sh- that really is true, you know. Yes, I think that's you know? fair at this and point. So, uh, yeah, you know. And so, um, but I thought, okay, you know what, I'm just going to do this. And so I worked with him on FaceTime. <laughs> It's Radiohead via FaceTime. I know, and it's hard because there's like sometimes a gap a in the delay, music, yeah. you know, a delay. But so I learned the tune, and so I um, came to New York. And in the meantime, I had reached out to Joe Iconis uh, because I was his fan, and he's very funny. Do you know him? I, yeah, I know his music. I wanted to ask you about that too, but yeah. yeah. So this song, Old Flame, I, I wrote him on Facebook as a fan and said, you know, dear Mr. Iconis, you know, I'm a real fan and some of my best friends – you know, your followers and have talked about you with seeing you live and stuff. And I've only seen you on YouTube videos and mm-hmm. but you're so funny and I love your point of view. And if you're ever writing something, think of me, you know, because I would like to work with you. And he wrote me right back this really nice note. <laughs> and he said, you know, I'd like you to be a part of the Joe Iconis family. And the day it was three days. It was like Martha's thing. And then three days later was Joe Iconis's evening. Uh-huh. And so now he sends me some songs, about five songs, and I listen to them, and they're really good, you know, but I none of them fit me. And I was really embarrassed because here's this composer I want to work with, lyricist, mm-hmm. and I'm like, dear Joe, you know, I'm so sorry, but none of these are something I feel I can have something to say. And that's what I was worried about. Radiohead, too, was like, why would a woman of my age, why would anybody believe me singing high and dry? But in the exploration of it, because I trusted Martha and I trusted her MD, I found what I feel about that and who I am in that material. And it had a more personal resonance than I had originally heard when I, because I love the record a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. but I heard it from that boy's point of view, Mm -hmm. you know, not from my point of view, from I understood his story. But then it's that same thing I went through in memory is to find myself in the material, who is that, you know? Mm 
And it's not me, it's a character, but still I have to use my own experience mm-hmm. to make that live. So um, he said, I said, none of these are really something, I mean, they're wonderful, but I don't, I don't think they fit me at this time in my life, which is part of the evolution of being a singer, you change. Yeah. And things that you really wanted to sing about when you were 30 or 35, I, I still love that girl, you know, if I ever encounter her version of that record. You know, my younger self, she's like a little sister that I knew well, you know, <laughs> but she's not me anymore, you know. And so um, so he said, don't worry, I'll write you something. Now, this was weeks before the event. Time goes by, time goes by, time goes by. I email me, how's that song coming? You know, do you want any ideas from me? No, don't worry about it. I'll, you know, it's coming. <laughs> Three days before the event, he sends me the song, Old Flame, and it was hilarious. And the character was just, I knew her so well. And I couldn't believe that somebody I'd never met and who was so much younger than I am could write something that fit me like a glove for my acting skills and my storytelling skills, which are specific, you know, my at my best. Uh-huh. And um, it was just hilarious, but I knew this character. And so I learned it really fast. And I was actually still learning it when I performed it. <laughs> so the evening for Martha, the high and dry thing went over incredibly. Everybody was like really embraced it. And it was like a great thing. And so I added, that was the beginning of my story songs collection. And then mm-hmm. before that, I had gotten, I'm still here from the experience of follies and my feelings about my love and for Elaine Stritch, because hers was my favorite version of that. Mm-hmm. But I studied everyone else's version as well. And um and then the Joe Iconis thing came along. So those were the linchpins of the record. Oh, then we were trying to find more material, more material. And we went, you know, I mean, it takes six months or so to put one of these things together, you sure. know, because it's, it's a quest, you know, like where does the music come from? What, what do I want to sing? What song can hold what I feel about life now? You know, it's very interesting. And process. I would think with this kind of collection too, you pick a song like High and Dry that you never thought you could sing. You see you can sing it. It makes you think, well, what else could I do? And leads right, you down that's different right. paths. And, and then the success I had with the audience's response to High and Dry made me want to go look again in my love for rock and roll because I hadn't ventured there for quite some time. You know, mm-hmm. um, So um, what happened then when we were in Grey Gardens and Christian and I were rehearsing at the Amundsen, and this was really interesting, well, to me, um, <laughs> the, the, the head of costumes and wardrobe at the Amundsen was this really nice man named Michael Gardner. And he knew I was rehearsing in the daytime, and he knew I was looking for material. So one night before the show, he comes in and he gives me a list of 12 songs with MP3s and YouTube videos and everything and said, I think you should sing these. Nice. So we went through every single song, and we went through a lot of other young composers and a lot of people, too, and uh, that had also sent me stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, of the 12 that Michael Gardner sent, we, we both looked at High and Dry, Christian and I, and we both loved that record. And I'd considered it in the past because I love that story, and I love the visions of it and mm-hmm. the music and everything. But I eliminated it based on the two voices, you know, because it's Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush. And mm-hmm. so I just thought, oh, well, then that it, the continuity of the story, because it's the boy's young man's point of view and then the, the woman's point of view or the girl that loves him. Mm-hmm. And so but Christian and I were like, let's try it. And so we loved it, and we loved. He came up with a different take on the arrangement than is quite what Peter Gabriel does. Mm-hmm. 
And then I worked with my sound man to create effects on the vocal so that I, I try to use one voice with the young man's point of view and another voice for the Kate Bush point of view, mm-hmm. you know, or the girl's point of view. Yeah. And it, it came together. And so I'm really happy with that one. It's a, it's, it's a really cool track. Thank um, you. So, and then Jason Robert Brown, how, what was your past with his music and how did uh, you come to well, have I've, him? Well, I wanted you? to collaborate with him for years and years. And um, he actually, he, I invited him to uh, be a guest lecturer at an, uh, a workshop that I was doing in Texas over the course of three months that culminates in a, co- in a couple of concerts for my students. And they are from various local high schools, and some come in from out of town, New York and L.A., different Colorado, different places. And so I work with them really intensely twice a week over, like, three months, and then we do these concerts. Mm-hmm. So as a part of that workshop, I invited him to come and lecture to them. And in that lecture, he told me that he'd actually written a song when he was a young composer that was meant for me to sing, only I never knew that. <laughs> and he, But he based it, the the structure of the song and the, the way the girl sings based on inspiration. And, you know, he was really sweet. But I had loved him before that and had declared my fanness years ago. So I just, you know, wrote him and said, um, oh, and I sang on one of my albums, his song Stars of the Moon, and mm-hmm. that was when I first met him because I was singing that song, and he really liked my version, which was, and kind of endorsed it, which was great. Because it's most most of the time the girls that have sung that sing it at a different tempo, and I sing it really with a very joyful, upbeat bed of music, and um, mm-hmm. and the story just kind of tumbles out. And I really I liked how that worked out. So anyway, I've never gotten to work for him in a show, although that's still my dream to do. And I so I wrote him an email and just said, "Do you have any new material to send me that you think I might, you know, that it's going to be a record?" And da da da. And so he sent me Cassandra, which was like a new song that he was work he of a for a new piece that he's working on. And I loved it, you know. And then he also suggested um All All Things in Time, which is an older song that he'd written, and Another Life from Bridges in Madison County. And mm-hmm. that was interesting to me because I loved that song when I saw the show. Yeah. With a little the young ingenue girl, the former wife to the photographer, comes forward on the stage with a guitar and just sings it really simply. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is so beautiful. But I was like, yeah, of course, you love the song that's sung by the ingenue. You can't do that. You know, you're too, you're older now. You can't, nobody will buy that from you. Mm-hmm. And so he sent it. And I thought, because I had eliminated that as a possibility when I, years before when I saw Bridges. And he, I, he said, no, I think you could do it really well. And I said, in the process of working on it, I wanted to change a couple of pronouns, the real minor changes. Mm-hmm. Um but it made it more the story of a, like a woman looking back at her life, mm. at the wound of a relationship that was the relationship that didn't work. And so now she's at a point in her life where that's long gone, but she's re- still has that fire in her heart for that that hasn't quite healed and the contemplation of what happened. And so I'm singing that um, <clears throat> this week with uh, at Michael Fines. I like that song a lot. I think it's a really pretty, That's a, it's pretty just story. It's a beautiful show. Thank you. Um, and Cassandra is is a a great song, and you sound it's you sound very comfortable singing it. I, I love it. Um, and it's like a it's like a feminist musical theater song. Totally feminist musical theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about it, just because it's very uh, it feels very timely right now. Totally. Well, that's what I heard when I when he sent it to me. I was like, oh, my God, this is immediate. 
and this is what's happening. And he, he sent me another song for this year called Hope that he wrote right after the election, which mm-hmm. is incredibly moving. And um, so I'm going to sing that at the new Jazz Pub show, mm-hmm. the new story songs. And um, so I was in love with Cassandra, and uh, T-Bone had long ago suggested You've Got to Be Taught. And I had tried to do You've Got to Be Taught, but it's very short. You know, mm-hmm. it's like really brief, and it's sung by the two men in South Pacific. Yeah. And um, it's about prejudice, obviously, and um, racism, and, uh, and the, to believe that it was written in late 1940s, you know, and that the show crazy. is so crazy, yeah. and that, we, that it's still an issue is absurd. So I just had this inspiration because I had never sung it independently and because it felt like it needed to be linked with something because out of context, it's just so short. And so it just says this, says what it says, and it's done, you know. <laughs> and so I, I just started having this fantasy about you've got to be taught segue in, and also just tempo-wise, just a little beautiful dark heart statement, and then you know, to, into Cassandra, um, the way Christian plays and my band plays and stuff. And so we tried it, putting them together, and they worked. It worked really well. And Christian's arrangement of You Gotta Be Hot is so poignant, you know, beautiful. I mean, when you work with, uh, you know, younger, very active composers like Jason and Joe, um, do they show you things about yourself as a compo- as, as a performer, I'm sorry, that, you know, you didn't learn over these many decades <laughs> before? Uh, not really. It's just I'm, at this point, no. The fact that they can give me a story that is resonant for me now mm-hmm. is what, and that they're so young and haven't necessarily... They don't know what my experience is as a woman of a certain age. You know, mm-hmm. it's like this kid's in his 20s. He's in his, you know, maybe early 40s. You know, you think, and, you know, Jason's been doing it longer than Joe, yeah. you know. But um, Joe is a brilliant guy. He's writing me a new original piece. I haven't heard it yet. He promised it by September 6th, So, and, and, and his calendar is so busy. I'm like, how is he going to get that done? I have no idea what he's writing about. I don't know what the character is. I can't wait, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so, and you know, Jason, I reached out to him again, and he sent me this song, Hope, that's very beautiful, very beautiful, and, you know, made me weep when I heard it. Um, you just, you know, what, you, what I'm looking for is the connection that the story is something that resonates in my heart that I know it's immediate and I, I can tell immediately, yeah, I can I can bring something to this. And then other times somebody else that's smarter than me, like maybe Martha Plimpton, knows for sure and I don't. You know, so then I have to trust her because I trust Martha Plimpton, you know, and, and I trust her taste. As one always should. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Martha Plimpton's smart. <laughs> and so um and then she guided me to high and dry. I like when the universe tells me what to do. I like that. You know, that's the best thing. Um, it's it's fun. It's like a, it's like a quest. It's like an adventure. Like what wh- what should I be an instrument of now? What's what's my job now? You know, and it was so much fun when we did story songs last year, and after we debuted it, Joe's Pub, some very cool people came and came backstage to see me and this one lady who was so great she came and whispered to me in my dressing room she goes this is your Hillary show isn't it (laughs) (laughs) it was really funny because it's you know it's definitely a political collection but it's very subtle you know it's not I'm not hitting anybody over the head with anything yes but but you know don't give up and Cassandra and you've got to be taught 
are pretty clear. <laughs> there is there's a, a thematic thread of sorts. Yeah. Uh, well, I think I mean to have such an adventurous spirit and <laughs> you know just keep going forward is what you have to do as a performer, and I think it's awesome that you're doing that, and I'm excited for the show. Thank you. I am too. I'm excited to see what we've got this year. I'm not even sure what it is. And um, <laughs> it'll like, be an adventure for the people who uh, come. Well, to. it's an adventure for us. You know, no, I'm about <laughs> to go work with Christian. I'm sure we'll sit and look at each other and his house where he's got this beautiful you know baby grand and we sit there and ponder and play and sing and work on stuff and refine arrangements and stuff but most of the time we're looking at each other like dumbfounded like what are we doing (laughs) and it's not until we finally get together with the band and try it all out and see what how it sequences and stuff and then we look at each other we're like wow it was there was something behind this all along some consciousness some conscious thread that was guiding us to the material, you know. And yes. It's fun. It's really fun. Sometimes I get these comments from people on Facebook like, oh, keep on keeping on, Betty. Like, I'm so old and <laughs> hanging in there. And it's just kind of like some kind of weird thing that you're still doing this, you know. And it, I feel a mixture of emotions about it when somebody says that because I feel like, well, yeah, of course. And like, well, who do you think I am? Because to me, I'm still 12. I'm not, you know, I haven't changed at all inside myself since I was 12. In fact, I feel (laughs) like I look like that too. And when I look in the mirror, I'm shocked, you know, but I'm just like, um, that's who I am is this kid, you know, and I've, I've always been that who wanted to be in the band. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, so when they do that, because I don't walk around with an awareness, except when my knees hurt or my shoulder hurts or, (laughs) you know, um, I don't walk around with an awareness that I'm any older, you know, it's just, I'm, it's the same person. And, um, so it's funny to me when they say that and it's like, well, of course, you know, I'm going to keep on keeping on. I mean, what do you expect me to What's do? What's the alternative? You know, <laughs> go sit home and become a couch potato. You know, it's like, of course, I'm going to generate a new grouping of songs this year because there's nothing more fun than working with Christian Jacob and, and having friends tell me what they think I should sing and, you know, trying to see what songs fit in the universe today and what people, what might support people to hear and make them feel better and make them feel joy. Betty Buckley's Story Songs is out now, and she'll be singing Story Songs 2 at Joe's Pub in New York, October 12th through 15th. If you're a fan of the Billboard on Broadway podcast, please subscribe on iTunes. Please give us lots of stars and nice reviews. You can always find me on Twitter at Rebecca Millsoff. You can use the hashtag Billboard on Broadway to tweet about the podcast. And I hope you'll come back for next week. Blah, 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 blah.